I titled this message, but the internet said, because the internet ticked me off. (laughs) I got an internet feed not long ago, and it was recommending dropping certain words out of our vocabulary. Words that were overused, words that were archaic, just ancient, old-fashioned kind of words, words that changed their meanings. But one of the words that, that stirred my soul was the word precious. We're supposed to get word of the word precious. I told them to take a hike. No, I really didn't, but... And because I remember a special scripture... In 1 Peter, it says, the precious blood of Christ. So I went digging in the Old Testament and the New Testament and the Greek and the Hebrew, and that word is used in both places, old and new. Sometimes it's translated honor, but it means the same. It means something of value. It's like like the the treasure hidden in the field, kind of precious. It's like the pearl of great price, kind of precious. It means something to be prized. Precious. So I wanted to go and, and search those scriptures, and I did. But today we're just going to look at First Peter and Second Peter, because Peter uses the word four different times. Four different ways. Precious. Translated in the English, it should be. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. And let's read verses um, 3 through 7. He says, Blessed is the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through your faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Faith that's more precious than gold more genuine, imperishable faith. And the whole process that Peter describes here is the process of when we are born again and what God does in our life. Excuse me. And he says that it's God who causes us to be born again. So the the great work of of salvation, of the great salvation that God gives us, is God's work. And in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer Hebrews tell us, we are not to neglect it. It's to be something that's special to us and cared for and looked after. And we we are told that it's God who's brought this about. Paul in Ephesians tells us it's God who has wrought this. In fact, it's God himself who has been rich in mercy. It's God himself, not some surrogate, but God himself who has made us alive together with Christ. And so our faith is a tested faith, but it's a precious faith. It's tested to see, is it genuine or is it fake? The trials that we have Uh, find ourselves in at times can be long, they can be arduous, 
Sometimes they're deep, they're hard days, difficult nights. Sometimes we struggle with unbelievable pain physically and emotionally. And very often these trials, they just tear at the very fabric of our lives. And Peter's addressing those trials to this group of people who are scattered believers and they're facing hard trials. They're facing hard persecution. Now when the Bible talks about faith, it talks about it in two ways. It talks about trusting Christ, trusting God, but it also talks about it as a as a body of knowledge that we have been given. We have been given this faith, Christian faith it's called, the Christian faith. And so when the trials come, they are testing our trust in God and they are testing whether we really believe what we say we believe. Is it genuine? Is it fake? Peter tells us here that it's God who has wrought this in us, caused us to be born again. He has granted us an inheritance. The inheritance is kept in heaven for us. But it's guarded. Our faith is guarded. We are guarded. He says we are guarded by the very power of God himself. So it's God who causes us to be born again. It's God who guards us with his power. But then he tests us, as he tested the people of Israel. Often he tested them to know if their faith is genuine or is it fake. He already knew. He wanted to reveal it to them. And so we are tested in this faith. We are tested with a faith that's more precious than gold. And it's more precious than all that gold can buy. You know, all things go away. But this faith is different. We are resurrected to a great hope in Christ himself. He holds us, he transforms us, and now we are called in verse 6 here, he says to rejoice. In this you rejoice now. Rejoicing Christians in the face of trials that are ripping their guts out and tearing at the very fabric of every day of their lives. In a couple weeks, I have the privilege of speaking to the men's group about three biographies, three men, William Tyndale, David Brainerd, and John Patton. All three who were ripped apart and tested at the very fabric of their lives. Sometimes every day almost of their lives. Two living rather short lives. David Brainerd lived only to be 39 years old. And the only reason we know anything about David Brainerd is because Jonathan Edwards published his diaries. And they are incredible diaries. Along with John Patton's. But these are men who suffered both persecution and health-wise in unimaginable ways. So our faith is tested. Our precious faith is tested. Our precious faith that is gifted to us by God is tested. You know, Peter knew the value of this faith. He knew how it was to be prized. He knew how it was to be desired. This word also has a connection of weightiness to it. Peter knew how costly this faith was that we were given. How costly it was on the cross for Christ to purchase this for us. And he says in verse 7, 
And may we be found to re- may it be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's one of the applications. What we're going to do is, and what I want to do is, I want to have four points, and at the end of each point, I want to talk about what's the application. Right here in the scripture, all surrounding the verses, there are applications to the particular verse. This verse is his precious faith. One of the applications is that we will be praising, we will be praising, praising, honoring, and glorifying God when Jesus Christ is revealed to us in his fullness. Now in that verse, verse 7, it says, tested by fire may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word honor is the very same word as precious. It's the noun form of the verb word precious. So it's a precious faith, a gifted faith by God, and it's to result in praise and glory and honor to his name. Peter loved it. Let's look at some of the application that we find here. Look at verse 8. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. We are called, because this faith is so precious, and because of the author of this faith, we are called to love him, even though we cannot see him in any form. And then he says, though you do not see him, you believe him. We are called to believe the truth that he has given to us. We are called to believe that Jesus is real. He is substantial. He is standing in heaven now. He is the lamb that looks like he was slain, but he's not in a bloody mess laying on the throne. He is standing as conqueror with seven horns and seven eyes. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we are called to believe that that's exactly true, as it is said. Let's go to verse 13. Therefore, he says, preparing your minds for action. Therefore, because this faith is precious, we are called to prepare the mind that God has given to us and it's a, it's a mind for action. We need a mind for action today. There is so much false teaching. There are so many lies. There is so much going against the truth of God's word. We must have a mind that knows the truth of God's word so that we can fight against what is going against God's word. Fight the lies that are there. And they're all over the place. Everywhere we go, much of what we watch and see and hear, the internet said, (laughs) right. And we know that. And we know it because we have the word of God and then he says to be sober-minded. This, this means that we are to not be overcome by the allurements of the world. But we are had to have a singular focus. And not be attracted by those allurements such that they impact this precious faith. And our lives, the redeemed lives that God has given to us. We are called, let's, let's, let's read on. We're called to be sober-minded. He said, set your hope fully on the grace that will be wrought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have a grace now, and we have a grace tomorrow, and we have a future grace, and we are to set our minds and our hope on that grace that's going to come when Jesus Christ returns. And then he said, as obedient children, be not conformed 
to the passions of your former ignorance. Because our faith is so precious and so valuable and so to be prized and carries so much weight with it, we are to kill the old life and we are to put on the new, is what the Apostle Paul says. John Owen says, kill sin before it kills you. And that's what he's calling us to do here. And then he says, but as he has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you go on, it says in verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, who were the ones, or who was, who, who were the people that these, these, these persecuted Christians were to fear? They were not to fear their persecutors. They were not to fear the ones that incarcerated them. They were to fear God and God alone. We know that from the scriptures. So he says, while you're in exile, fear God. All right. Point two is found in verse, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 1. Same verse, we'll start there again. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot he who was known before the foundation of the world but was manifest in the last times for your sake who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God Peter's not afraid to use that word precious and he calls the very blood of Christ precious so I think, we, I think we have to ask, what makes this blood precious? What makes this blood, made up like my blood or your blood, what made it so precious, so valuable, so much to be prized, so much to be honored, that your whole life depended upon it? In fact, your whole eternity depends upon it. I think there are two answers to that. And you can't have one without the other. The first one is, is whose blood is this? (laughs) And that tells everything. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. We'll start at verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good news that have come, then then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls, and with the ashes of a heifer, sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
This is not an animal's blood. This is not some other person's blood. This is the Son of God. In fact, it is God in Christ giving his own life by his own blood, it says, he has given us. No other substitute's going to suffice except Christ, our substitute, whose blood is more precious than God's. Whose blood? Let me question more. Whose blood is more precious than God's? No one. There is no more precious blood than God's blood himself. No person, no animal. It was the I am hanging on the cross, a bloody mess, securing our eternal redemption. No one else and no other blood could accomplish that. The long-awaited Messiah hanging on the cross, bleeding, bleeding, bleeding. Oh, how precious is that blood. He is the living and abiding word, Peter says. But there's a second part. It's not only whose blood, but it's what this blood accomplished. There were two other guys hanging on the cross. They bled also. And their blood accomplished nothing. And Jesus' blood accomplished everything. These passages in Hebrews, if we would read them and go on, we won't. But these passages in Hebrews tell us that the blood of Christ was sufficient to, one, secure our eternal redemption. We read that. Purify our consciousness from dead works. We read that. Make Jesus, make Jesus our mediator appearing in the presence of God on our behalf. His blood is so precious that we can enter into the very presence of the living God and not be killed. No high priest could do that, except one high, except no priest could do it, except the high priest, and that's only once a year with animal sacrifices for his own blood as well as the people. But it did not take away sin. Jesus' precious blood allows us, because he has taken away our sin, the obstacle that stands between us and God is gone. We can enter into his presence. He redeemed us from our transgressions. He puts away our sins. He's coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him because he wants to sanctify his people. His precious blood takes us from being enemies and makes us his children, and he takes his enemies and he makes them his footstool. And his precious blood is so precious that he, we are enabled to receive his Holy Spirit bearing witness to the Son. His blood is so precious that it causes us to have a new heart, a new life. He puts his laws on our heart. He writes them on our minds. Open for us is the curtain for a new way of living. And we are clean. We are sprinkled clean. Our hearts are clean. Our conscience is clean. If all that I just said is from Hebrews 9.11 to Hebrews 10.22, that little bit is all, the, all of that. There's so much more. The Bible is full of the accomplishment of Christ. We can go on and on and talk about the sufficiency of Christ's blood from him who bore the wrath of the Father. We can talk about how precious his blood gifts us his grace. It gifts us 
his mercy and faith. Jesus bought those for us on the cross. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.5 that God has made us alive together with Christ. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Dead. Could do nothing. And because of the blood of Christ shed on my behalf, God yanked me out of darkness, made me alive, caused me to be born again, and brought me into a relationship with him, together with Christ. It's through his blood that we have forgiveness of our trespasses. Revelation 5.9 says of Jesus, You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Paul tells us this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, that it's the precious blood that delivers us from the present evil age. Why? Because it's God's will, he says. It's the precious blood that redeems us from the curse of the law. Why? Because Jesus became the curse. The one who perfectly obeyed the law became the one who became the curse of the law and died in our place. Paul tells us that it's through Christ that we receive the blessing of Abraham. And it comes to all the Gentiles of salvation. And through it, we might receive the promised Holy Spirit. And what about the accomplishment of the precious blood of Christ as foretold in the Old Testament? How about Genesis 3.15? When it talks about Christ crushing Satan. The Messiah who would die would actually destroy the authority and power of the enemy on our lives. It couldn't be the animals. The animals could not take away sin. But the animal sacrifice every day was a pointing, a foreshadowing of this great sacrifice of Christ. Every time blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, Every time blood was sprinkled on the tabernacle, it was pointing to the blood of Christ that would be sprinkled all over it. Jesus spilled his blood, the writer of the Hebrews tells us, once and for all. Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 23, I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And this is the name by which he should be called the Lord our righteousness. But here's my question. How can the branch, how can the I am Jesus be my righteousness? And this is how it can be. Jesus lived the perfect life. He lived the perfect law. And he died under the fulfillment of disobedience to the law. A disobedience which he never committed. But he took the penalty. It's a precious blood that he shed being expended for us so there was, it was efficacious enough for God to say, yes, I accept your blood as an atonement for their sins. Because you lived the law, not breaking it at all, and because you died the law, because they broke it. The resurrection, the grave, could not hold him. There was no way that tomb was going to stay shut. There was no way Jesus could stay in that grave. He had to come out because he was perfectly obedient to the Father and he was raised 
from the dead, satisfying the wrath of God and satisfying our guilt. And by the grace and the mercy of God, we are accounted as righteous. His righteousness, his perfect righteousness is counted to you and to me who do not deserve it in any way, shape, or form. The righteous for the unrighteous, Peter says. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Have you ever heard of such a crazy thing? A bunch of sinners. Every day deserving hell are actually counted as righteous. <laughs> okay, let's look at some of the applications of the Peter passage. Let's go back there. First Peter 1. All surrounding this precious blood passage, there are applications. Let's start with verse um, 22. Let me start with verse 22. It says, Having purified your souls... Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Because the blood is so precious, because it's so valuable and weighty, we are called to obey the truth. The truth. This is the truth. And we are called to obey it. Not only that, he says, Uh, for obedience to the truth. He says, for sincere brotherly love to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We are called to love one another. Sometimes that's a heavy load. But we're called to it. And then he says in verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of of God. And then he he goes on, and he goes down to chapter 2 then. So since that has occurred, because of the precious blood, he says in chapter 2, verse 1, so put away all malice. Put away all malice. Put away all deceit, he says. Put away hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Put it away. That's exactly, that's exactly what we see all around us. Deceit and hypocrisy and malice and slander. That's the world. And we are not called to engage in that in any way, shape, or form. And if we have it, we are to put it away. We are to, Paul says, kill it. Why? Because we have been ransomed by the precious blood of none other than God himself. And we could go on. Let's go to point three. Down in chapter two, First Peter chapter two, start with verse four. As you have come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of chosen but in the sight of God chosen and precious you you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ 
For as it stands, and now he's going to quote from three different passages of the Old Testament. This, is, this first part in, chap, in verse 6 comes from Isaiah 28:16. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then he quotes from Psalm, in verse 7, first part of verse 7, from Psalm 118, verse 22. It says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, and here's the quote, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And in verse 8, then he says, A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This comes from Isaiah 8.14. And it's interesting because in Isaiah 8.14, it, it not only says he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, but this cornerstone, this stumbling stone, is also a sanctuary. So for the believers, the cornerstone is a sanctuary. For the unbelievers, it gets crushed by the stone. So this Go back to the Peter passage here. 1 Peter 2.4 2, says, You have come to him a living stone. So he's called a living stone here. And then he's called a cho- chosen and precious stone. And then he's called in those Old Testament passages, he's called a rejected stone. And then he's called a stone of stumbling and offense. And then further in Isaiah, he's called the stone who's a sanctuary. First Peter, First Peter here is writing. Peter is writing about the one who believes in the stone will not be ashamed, but he will receive honor. The one who rejects will stumble. So the cornerstone is a big deal. It's nothing to pass over. But Peter has not identified what or who it is. Now, we all know who it is, but he hasn't said so yet. In fact, we have to go to Ephesians. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul identifies the stone. Begin with verse uh, 18. I'm sorry, I'm wrong. Uh, Ephesians 2.20. Let me, let me begin with verse 19. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation, the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Christ himself, the cornerstone, building the church on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets to be a holy dwelling, to be a temple for God and the Spirit to live. So the Old Testament And Peter tell us that this stone, this cornerstone is precious. It's not an archaic word. It's not a word to be discarded. Jesus, the precious cornerstone, is the very one who's called us out of darkness, yanked us out of darkness, and put us into his marvelous light to be his own possession, the scripture tells us. Why and what are we supposed to do? Okay, here's an application. 1 Peter 1.9. 1 First, I have to turn back there. First Peter 2.9, I'm sorry. 
He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, to do what? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jonathan Edwards, going through the scriptures, came up with like two columns of words. And he said, this is who Christ is. Christ is the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. (laughs) He is the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. Like, in example, he's both lion and lamb. Both diverse joined in one. We are called to proclaim those excellencies to the world. You know, Doak wrote in one of his blogs here, on, he said that they were, you know, they're, they're, they'd been in conversation with the, their guide, Mr. B, and, and um, he seems to have an open mind uh, to the gospel. Um, and I think it was today, maybe, maybe it was yesterday, they wanted to talk to him about who Jesus is. That's everything. That's everything. If God opens his eyes to the truth of who Jesus is, his life will be forever changed. He is the precious, precious, living and abiding cornerstone Who is God in the flesh? He is to be valued. He is to be prized. He is to be desired. He is to be so prized and valued that we fight the passions of the flesh that wage war against our souls. He is so precious and valuable and weighty that we are to fight against any false teaching any ideology that goes against the truth of God, anything that promises to be gospel and isn't gospel. In fact, Paul tells the Galatians, he says, who has bewitched you? Somebody's come in there and they have shown you another gospel, which really isn't another gospel because there's only one gospel. And he says, those who have shown you a false gospel should be accursed which means they should be prepared for destruction. God takes this stuff seriously. He takes his truth seriously. And we are called to fight the good fight of faith. Paul fought the faith. Paul fought against false teaching everywhere he went. And after he went there. This precious cornerstone is described in Revelation as the lamb standing as though it had been slain. Seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. And the singing is ringing out, worthy Worthy, worthy is the Lamb. So Jesus is building himself a church, a body, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He is securing the cornerstone which measures and holds this church together as its head. And he is bringing us into the presence of God without spot or wrinkle, as the Apostle Paul says, without blemish. So how precious is the cornerstone? How could this precious cornerstone not be precious to our hearts and our souls? How could he not be precious to our hearts and souls as such that he will be the prize, the pearl of great price 
and a treasure hidden in the field that Jesus gives us in Matthew. Prized and praised and precious is this Jesus. So what's the application? The application is the rest of Peter here. (laughs) He is the precious cornerstone. He is the precious, this is the precious blood of Christ that was shed. Now Peter gives the rest of Peter as the application to this. He talks about marriage and suffering. He talks about living as servants of God. This, This cornerstone is so precious. He talks about being stewards of God's grace about humility and obedience and all kinds of other applications we find there in 1 Peter. Okay, now we need to go to 2 Peter chapter 1. Let's start with verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's all things. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So Peter tells us that these promises that God has given to us, they are to be prized and to value, and and they're so weighty that it's a promise that God has made before the foundation of the world that's implemented through Christ because all the promises of God, Paul tells us, are yes in God. They are all Yes, every single one of them. Every promise God makes of destruction, every promise of pouring out his wrath, every promise of goodness and kindness and love to us, every promise of of guarding our souls, they are all yes. They will happen. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.22, who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit, to our hearts as a guarantee, a down payment. This down payment is so valuable because it was promised to us and because of who it is, the Holy Spirit. God made the promise. The Holy Spirit would come, Jesus said. That's exactly what happened. Paul and Silas to the jailer says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He believed he was saved. The promise was kept. Peter describes this as great and precious. Our salvation is great and precious. It's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His very own glory and excellence and virtue and moral standards. He calls us to walk in. He describes our salvation as having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. These promises that he has made to us will be kept, and they are kept, because they have been purchased by the blood, the very precious blood of the Lamb. There's no way Because God doesn't lie, there is no way that a promise will not be kept. God is described in the Old Testament. In fact, Abraham gives him his name. You've heard of the name Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Jireh. The the Lord provides. Abraham is going to sacrifice his son because God told him to do that. God provides a ram in his place. And God calls the place, Abraham calls the place Jehovah-Jireh. God will provide. But this word provide is an interesting word because it, it goes further back when 
Hagar, Hagar, right? Hagar, Abraham's, Sarah's handmaiden, right? When she was booted out of the house by Sarah, God took care of her. And he provided water coming out of the ground. And she said, God provides. The word provide, the actual word is to see. (laughs) And it means to see to it. So when God makes a promise, he sees to it that it will be kept. God provided for Abraham because he promised he would. Abraham knew it and God provided. Hagar didn't know it (laughs) and God provided. God saw to it and he will see to every one of his promises. And that's why Peter calls these promises, these promises are precious. They are precious and they are valuable. Well, if you read the rest of 2 Peter, we'll stop here, you'll find the application. And they're all over the place. What? Jesus' blood is precious. The faith he has bestowed upon us, both the body of knowledge, the faith to believe is precious. His promises are so precious to us. The cornerstone himself is precious to us. So the one word I want you to go out here of here is the word precious. Don't get rid of it. Don't keep it out of your vocabulary if it's in your vocabulary. We call our granddaughter precious. We love her much, but she doesn't hold a candle to the cornerstone. <laughs> precious that's more weighty and gracious and, and, and uh, grand, grand than anything we could ever imagine. And that's the precious Jesus, Lord and Savior. Let's pray.